Welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Burke, and I do data engineering and machine learning at Databricks, and I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Ben Wilson. Uh, I write better docs for open source software. Yes, love it. Um, so today's guest is Neil Feeks, and personally, this is one of the most excited I've ever been about any guest. Um, let me explain why. So he got his MD at Columbia and since then has focused on pathology, which is the study of diseases. And then throughout his time as an academic, he also worked as a lead scientist at PopTest, an organization that develops new technologies and medicines. But sadly, this is not an episode about ML and pathology. We'll follow up idea. Um, but instead today, we are talking about his book, Notes on Complexity, A Scientific Theory of Connection, Consciousness, and Being. And the reason I'm excited is this was a super formative book for me. I like to read nonfiction. I like to learn. And this, uh, the takes in this book were very easy to follow, yet rigorous and different from what I've heard in the past. Um, so, Neil, before we get into the philosophy of, of this book and its correlation to machine learning, do you mind explaining your job as a pathologist and lead scientist? I'm oh, sure. Um. <clears throat> So uh, as a pathologist, um, within that, I'm an anatomic pathologist, which means I look at things under the microscope, anatomy. Um, so sometimes I'm involved in autopsies. When I was younger, I did more of that. Um, but most of my work is focused on liver disease, and, um, and I look at biopsies. I showed you one of these before. That's a slide. That little line in there is a little piece of someone's liver. And um, so if someone gets a biopsy or a resection um, or let's say has a liver transplant, I'm the person who looks at the tissue under the microscope and says cancer, not cancer. Um, Post-transplant is a rejection or is a recurrent disease um, or pre-transplant or in a non-transplant, you know, what disease does this patient have? Is it autoimmune disease? Is it drug toxicity? Um, and that information helps guide treatment. One of the things uh, I like about liver and one of the reasons I do liver as a subspecialty is the clinicians never have the whole answer. That's why they do the biopsy. But even with a biopsy, um, the liver has such a limited range of reacting to things that I can create what's called a differential diagnosis of the things that are likely to be behind the changes in the liver. But it requires communication. So it's a team sport. And not all of pathology is a team sport, even though it looks like I'm locked away in a closet, and I am. Um, I'm on the phone uh, or on, you know, working with the clinical liver teams uh, on a daily basis. And that's the fun part. This really gives probably the best answer I've ever heard anybody give about the question I've heard from many people from the data science community who are like, well, we have deep learning models that can do image recognition. We should be able to take pictures of slides of human cells or animal cells mm -hmm. and predict or classify with 100% accuracy better than any human can. And every no. team that I've ever seen try to do that, yeah. they never succeed. Yeah, It's always like, yeah, we can use it as a, as a pre-filter with right. large volume data before it goes to a specialist like yourself. Right. But that that algorithm is never going to replace a person. So I, I, I think there are some things where it might, 
I think there is some low hanging fruit where the questions, the the possibility of changes is so clear and simple. Uh, you know, I think about um, pap smears, women who are getting screened for cervical cancer. That's something where people are going in. I think that's low hanging fruit in the field. And, uh, you know, they'll get an exam and some of their cervix will get scraped off lightly and the cells put on a slide and you just have these cells. So you're dealing with single cells. There's no pattern. And the cells are either this big, this big, or this big. Their nuclei are this big, this big, or this big. There are very few variations. Um, I think that could become a straightforward sort of process. But um, some tumor diagnoses, uh, I'm at NYU uh, Grossman School of Medicine uh, or NYU Langone Health is the medical center. And we have an active AI division and they're looking at tumor diagnosis. So if you know that this tumor is from the lung and we put it in the machine and it has these features, can we you know, make a diagnosis? I think that's probably going to be likely at least as a pre-screening thing, as you said, but malignant versus non-malignant. But again, for tumors, the the range of tumors, let's say in the liver, um, I wish my office was unpacked. I could actually take out the book that has the list of all tumors of the liver. Um, it's under 100. So um, yeah, you could probably get a diagnosis. But for medical liver disease, things like viral hepatitis or drug toxicities, alcoholic liver disease, um, autoimmune diseases, fatty liver disease, which is now epidemic. Uh, you know, 35% of the country probably has fatty liver disease. And now we're finding, so all of those have overlapping features mm-hmm. that make it very subtle. And now increasingly, my group has been researching this, there's a, there's a shift. Um, there's more and more drug toxicities, which you basically diagnose by, it doesn't look like anything else, therefore it has to be a toxin or multiple diseases overlapping. Could that in 50 years be done by AI? Maybe. Um, People have approached me to discuss, could we get your brain into a machine and (laughs) you could teach it to do what you do? And uh, one, I'm not interested. (laughs) If it ever happens, I'll be long gone, which will please me. Um, But that's really high up in the truth. I'm not sure to what extent that would be possible. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, in just... I appreciate... I'm I'm used to hearing people tell us how we're going to be replaced soon. So I I don't think that... Personally, I don't think it's ever going to happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not with silicon-based architectures. Our brains are not binary. We don't just make decisions like that. So you would probably know far more than anybody else we talk to about how that actually works in the human mind. We certainly don't, um, but we'll see. You can ask me questions. I'll, I'll answer as honestly as I can. But just in a couple of minutes when you're explaining Mm -hmm. that, that's, you gave us the, not just the 50,000 foot view. You gave us the 50 light year view Mm -hmm. of the complexity associated with one particular pathology diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And you were drawing on almost limitless stores of your own personal knowledge and the knowledge of everybody who came before you who did research to can to contain all of that knowledge and that's not just the knowledge in one person's brain that's mm-hmm. you also knowing where on your your currently empty bookshelf but 
soon to be completely filled bookshelves, where to go to look at for that exact information to get the mm-hmm. correct answer and then use intuition and deep wisdom to say, I have a hypothesis that this is what's going on, but you're probably comparing in your mind hundreds of thousands of possibilities without even being aware of it. Yeah. Well, and, uh, you know, I, I, I swung this around to show you guys my scope before we went live. A key feature is someone can sit here with me. Mm-hmm. And pathology is not taught with books. It's not taught with a machine. It's not taught by online teaching. Those can be used to supplement it. But it's an apprenticeship. And I sat on that side of a microscope from my teachers. I I could show you, sometimes we have multi-headed scopes where you have four, six, 20 people sitting around a microscope while one person is driving the scope, as we say. Um, And I spent hours with my teachers looking at slides, learning to see them as they did. Um, You know, a, a real transmission of experience and knowledge and practice, not just a bunch of facts. I memorize some pictures so I can, you know, answer the questions on the exam. Um, and those subtleties. That's why a lot of people don't like to do liver is it's even more so because, you know, there, there are a few different organs that have this um, array of medical conditions. And uh, the lung is a similar kind of thing. Skin is a similar kind of thing. To go into those, you have to be ready to be part of a team and know that you can't have the entire answer. But like I said, for me, that's the fun. For some people, that's the nightmare. (laughs) I want to look under the slide. And there are days I come in and I'm like, please give me simple cases. Please, I really, just straightforward history, straightforward diagnosis. Um, But those are fewer and fewer for a variety of reasons where the liver is concerned. So. One question on that, how, what is your correct versus incorrect ratio in terms of diagnoses? Do you know? Or what is like a typical one in the field? Uh, it better be close to 100% correct. Wow, okay. You know, that, I mean, this is one of the things that makes pathology particularly challenging in a way that's sort of hidden. Um just about every other element of a of a patient's care, um, their primary physician is ordering tests or sending them to specialists. The specialists are ordering tests, maybe labs, maybe a biopsy from someone like me, um, you know, et cetera. They all have multiple uh, streams of information coming in, and so if they miss an abnormality over here because they just didn't notice it in the report or they misremember it. There's a whole bunch of other things that can correct for that. So there's self-correction in this web of interactions and diagnostics that keeps you from making a mistake. But if I'm on call for um, what we call frozen section diagnoses, so there's a patient on the table in the operating room and they don't have a pre-op diagnosis of a tumor being benign or malignant and let's say a breast tumor. And for some reason they couldn't make the diagnosis beforehand. They'll do it during the operation, send the tissue down in order to turn it into a slide. We have to make the tissue stiff enough um, to cut it very thin. 
Um, and the way we do that is we freeze it when we're in a hurry. Um, the normal process, the slide I showed you, that's an overnight process to get it from wet tissue um, into what's called fixed, dried, um, dehydrated, permanent tissue that we can stain on a slide. But a frozen section, we can prepare it in like five minutes and give you a diagnosis, cancer, not cancer. Well, let's say I get that wrong. Um, let's say I call it benign and they leave it there and they only bother to check it again when it seems to grow too fast. But in that week or two week or one month interval, now it's spread. So that one decision. Or I say it's cancer and they take the breast off and then we get the sections, the permanent sections as we call them, with more detail. And it's like, no, it's a benign mimic of a malignant cancer. Then we've taken a limb off something. So there's, there are these moments for a pathologist almost on a daily basis where I don't have the luxury of having wiggle room. Um, and it can be fraught. <laughs> it can be a, a scary thing. A lot of us will lose sleep over, did I call that right? And you won't know. We all sort of, um, I have never, to my knowledge, <laughs> I have not made any clinically significant cases, mistakes. None of them have come to my awareness. Um, but I have heard from my mentors, and now I'm starting in my 60s to experience it. On the one hand, I've got this uh, depth of experience that gives me a confidence <laughs> that I know what I'm doing. But you're going to make a mistake sometime. It's the odds, right? I've been doing this for 35 years. I'm starting to get nervous that the mistake I've avoided, assuming I have avoided making any, may be sooner than later. And I'm getting more anxious, not less, as time goes by. And, and there are a lot of pathologists that, uh, as they get older, get more hesitant um, as a result of that. So thanks <laughs> for reminding me of my current state of anxiety. Anytime. I have enough. So you know, so we do quality assurance and quality assessments all the time. We review each other's cases all the time. A certain percent are always seen by somebody else. So we're looking uh, to see systematic mistakes or systemic mistakes. Um, we're watching that all the time. Do mistakes happen? Sure. They should be extraordinarily rare. Like one in 10,000, one in 100,000. Odd question for you. Yeah. Uh, as being somebody who, not from the negative perspective of, of thinking of, hey, I'm holding people's lives in my hands if I make a mistake, but more on the flip side of that coin. Um, realizing that the things that you do day in and day out are fundamentally changing probabilities of humanity to do or not do certain things, right? A decision that you make could, you know, save the life of somebody who's going to do some, make some great discovery for the benefit of all mankind, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you never know, like, you know, people get sick, they have to you know, have an adjudication by, by you and other members of your staff that are, that are doing similar stuff. Does that ever weigh on people's conscience, consciousness? And <laughs> if it does, 
do you all sort of endure that that burden just by the fact of having community of people that are are sharing in that experience um the way you phrased it that's not a burden that's the gift of being able to do this um now i'm gonna get all choked up <laughs> um you know i'll get called in the middle of the night for a transplant related question um usually in the middle of the night it's a, a transplant surgeon who um they have a donor organ and they're not sure whether it's usable or not. And um, it looks funny or the numbers um, of the donor, the, the liver tests were a little abnormal. And so they want to do a biopsy and check it. And, um, and that can happen like 11, 12, one o'clock in the morning because the, the donor harvesting, <laughs> that's the word organ harvest happen overnight. So the surgeries can start in the morning and a surgeon will get me on the phone and send me, I mean, it used to be, I had to come in and do a frozen section on a donor liver in the middle of the night. Um, now, uh, someone makes the slide, takes pictures of it and sends it to me on my phone. So I can be lying in bed or I can, <laughs> can be buzzed while I'm, you know, finishing up at the theater. <laughs> and, um, I never feel burdened by that. I feel like what a privilege me and the surgeon talking about this situation. Um, and often the surgeon in transplant, it's really interesting. They know what the right, they have an instinct for the, what, whether to use it or not. Um, and I've learned with, with the best of them. And those are the people I work with. Those are the people who are successful in a place like this. Um, I've learned over the years, it's not up to me to tell them what's in the biopsy. I'm really holding their hand to uh, make them comfortable following their instincts because their instincts are usually right. Um, so I provide crucial information often, but I never feel that's a burden. Uh, my editor <laughs> for my book is constantly asking me, they didn't call you in this week, did they? And she thinks it's like, I keep telling her, it's not a bad part of my job. Um, I feel so profoundly useful. And it's such a privilege to participate in that kind of thing. But I would also say that there's no one that isn't potentially having that kind of impact on the future course of events or the future course of any individual. Because we never have any clue as to what the small ripples are of any action that we take. Um, so there's nothing, you know, what the gift is, I'm aware of it. <laughs> and people treat me like they're aware of it. So, you know, there's there's a little bit of privilege here, like, oh, well, Dr. Thies. <laughs> you know? The only thing I don't like when people call me Mr. Thies is, to me, that's my father. <laughs> um, that just confuses me. Um, so, you know, it's a mistake to think that I'm having more or more impact than many. Um, and someone who's an engineer <laughs> is having less um, or someone who is retired and just walks their dog. Um, I had this aunt. You'll, you'll see that 
you know, you ask me any question, I can go on for half an hour. So you can feel free to stop me or edit, you know, whatever you want. But I, <laughs> I'll finish with this one. Um, my mother's eldest sister lived in Fresh Meadows in New York hmm. um, and was really impoverished. And um, she died at 65 the day her Social Security was finally going to kick in. And <laughs> that's the kind of life my Auntie Frida had. And um, for a variety of reasons, she was very impoverished. And my parents tried to get her to come live with us in Hartford, Connecticut, um, where we had a den with its own entrance. We could have turned that into an apartment for her. And she could have lived a very comfortable life. And she refused. And we never really understood. And then she died on her 65th birthday. Um, and we went to, um, you know, to, to do all the, the Jewish mourning stuff with her kids in New York. And it turned out that she was known in the neighborhood as the mayor of Fresh Meadows. She was on a first floor apartment with a little porch. And when the kids were going off to school in the morning, she was there. And when the kids were coming back from school, she was there. If a parent needed one of their kids taken care of or watched over for a bit, she was there. She had this extraordinarily rich life. But what did she do? Nothing. You know? I mean, the ripple effect of what she did for all those neighborhood kids that had like a safety blanket during their childhood. Yeah. Who knows what, what they carry on Who is. Knows? So you're walking down the street and you take this path as opposed to that path. If we get into, if we, if I ever let you get into the complexity stuff, the divergent ant thing, which ant finds the next food source while all these ants are busy carrying this food source back from, you know, the sugar cube over here back to the colony. But there's one little ant that's over here wandering around. And I used to think, oh, poor stupid little ant, the one that would wander into my mom's kitchen. And um, I'd quickly get it on a tissue paper and carry it outside. I felt sorry for it, but it got lost. No, that little divergent ant might, if, if it had bumped into a crumb on the floor of my mother's kitchen, not that there were ever crumbs there, um, but had there been one, that would have been a home invasion. Mm -hmm. um, but to the outside, that little ant seemed like it was evolutionary dis evolutionarily disadvantaged. And let me get it back home. So, yeah, so th that's a the underlying current of a lot of these concepts is sort of causality in a complex framework. Like if you make a decision and then we take a medical treatment that saves someone's life, well, there's probably causality there. Because if you were sort of the linchpin of that decision, you get quote unquote credit. Um, how do you think about causality in more complex frameworks like with your aunt? Um, in these, this neighborhood where it's several steps removed from the actual result. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, again, you're sort of being dismissive of the result. If the result is that kid goes home happy rather than sad or doesn't feel lonely, you know, you're thinking, well, the result, did this kid go on to flourish? And, you know, yeah, good point. let's, let's, you know, if you have a good day, how grateful are you or, or, or should you be to the people around you or the puppies <laughs> that, that help you have a great day? And how does that great day pass on? But the, but the other thing is that um, bad things happen too. Bad shit happens. And, the, and it comes from perfectly good intentions. 
um, because there is, and this is another complexity feature, it's a feature, not a bug, is that there's always a little randomness in living systems. Um, whether the living system is a cell or a body or a community of bodies, which might be an ant colony, a flock of birds, or a neighborhood, or a culture, or an economy, or an ecosystem. Um, that divergent ant. Um, if none of the ants were organized into the food line, the, the colony would collapse. But if there were no divergent ants out there looking for other food, when that sugar cube is finally hauled completely in, where's the next food source? There's going to be a gap where there's no food coming. And now everyone has to scatter because, you know. So there has to be a low-level um, randomness or um, uh, there was another word I wanted to use. <laughs> I'm forgetting it. Um, this is not my best part of the day. Um, uh, a low-level randomness that allows the living system to explore other possibilities if the environment changes. And without that, um, if there's no divergent ant, the system is like a machine. And the environment changes, the food source runs out, there's no way for the machine to change its behavior. Um, if there's too much randomness, then there's no organization at all. So you need this low-level randomness. And one of my teachers and friends, who's one of the founders of complexity science, um, Stuart Kaufman, refers to the cloud of possibilities for what the next moment might be um, that derives from this limited randomness. He talks about that as the adjacent possibles. What's possible for the system in the next moment? And some of those possibles will lead to further creativity, adaptation, and flourishing. Some of them will lead to mass extinction. And that we can talk about why that possibility is inherent. But the key thing here is that it's not an infinite array of adjacent possibles. It's not infinity. It's a constrained array. And that's where the creativity and adaptability of living things comes from. And it's not predictable. So we, you know, the, when you, when you put it into terms of, um, this act here leads to that effect there, you're thinking in a very machine-like sort of way that, oh, you push the button and this circuit closes and there's an electrical impulse that goes to here and a gate opens and, you know, blah, 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 and we can trace it. But that isn't the way the universe works. That isn't the way living things work. And the universe is a living thing. So there's no, if we knew where every particle and wave and field in the quantum realm was at this moment, if we could know that, we still could not predict what the next moment of the universe universe would be. We can only predict the adjacent possibles. And just putting it in that context, all of a sudden, oh, we're used to thinking that now in terms of quantum physics. It's all just adjacent possibles. What are the constrained possibilities for where that electron is going to be? It turns out that functions at the universal scale and there are all the scales in between. And that's what makes life not machine. Right. So I was always of the the belief that we're just a bunch of gears and yeah. your discussion of randomness specifically at sort of the quantum level changed my perspective on this. So can you explain why you believe randomness is a thing? 
Why does it? Well, I just did. <laughs> but yeah, but the, going the down to waste particles. Right. The bigger question to me is why do we think it's otherwise? And we think it's otherwise because the ability to look under the microscope um, or look in a telescope at different things, the ability to examine the world in greater detail happened at the same time as we were inventing machines. And it seemed that machines were a good metaphor for what bodies are. That's the problem. The idea that it seems, the idea isn't why do I think randomness is important? I just explained it. I mean, you can, any, any living system is a whole made of parts, whether it's ants or cells in a body. There's always, and you can study it, there's always a, a limited degree of stochasticity, of unpredictability in living systems. Um, people have worked really hard to eliminate that and to say that things are determined. Um, when I, what led me to doing complexity theory was actually doing stem cell research. This was about 20 to 25 years ago. And, um, and one of the things we were showing, uh, so my team was part of a small crowd of people, a small cloud of adjacent possibles in the stem cell world, um, who were showing that adult bone marrow stem cells could travel around the body and not just make red or white blood cells, but could also make cells of the liver, of the heart, of the kidney, of the lung, of the brain, et cetera. And, um, my group's paper published in Cell on that topic, actually, uh, Ben, maybe you're old enough to remember when George Bush gave his stem cell address to the nation. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Michael, look it up. <laughs> so basically, I mean, the president of the United States gave a stem cell address to the country saying that we were going to we could limit using embryonic stem cells because now we do adults that knew that adult stem cells could do whatever embryonic stem cells could do. It was our paper that triggered that. So unexpected consequences, adjacent possible successful publication to make my career turns into something that winds up being of use to the abortion, the anti-abortion lobby in the country and eliminates, you know, throws a monkey wrench into all stem cell research for the next two decades. So that sort of thing happens. But the reason I bring that up is one of the major bone marrow stem cell people who was a member of the National Academy of Science who opposed our research and made it really impossible for adult stem cell bone, adult, this was called adult stem cell plasticity. Cells could, were plastic. They could do, they could become other kinds of cells in ways we didn't expect. He opposed that idea in part because his research had showed, shown that what cells could do was deterministic and machine-like. He refused to acknowledge that actually there were small variables in there that could shift things. And his crit major critique of our work was, well, sure, you've, you've shown that one in 100,000 cells or one in 10,000 cells of the bone marrow could become a liver cell. That's trivial. No. That's the thing itself, <laughs> that low level randomness. And this was, this was my first complexity publication, actually. Um, that low level randomness, precisely because it was low level, is what made it vital, literally vital, it made us a living system. 
and no one talks about determinism in, in cell differentiation anymore the way he did. Um, but no one's doing stem cell research like might have happened had he not tried to interfere and George Bush gave this address, et cetera. Would you say that all sort of foundational and sort of research that comes out or ideas that are generated by the system that we call humanity, conscious mm -hmm. beings on planet Earth. Mm -hmm. Do you say that every major, you know, finding that, that happens is due to some level of that low level randomness. When we look at our species as a whole, as an organism on this mm -hmm. planet, effectively, it's not that every single person that's living on this planet is having epiphanies every single day. And we're just, we're selecting for the best ones that are going to win out. A lot of people are living their lives. They're doing the things that, that they normally do. People live an entire lifetime without, you know, coming up with anything that fundamentally changes anything apart from their neighborhood or their town or something, you know, their immediate community. But there's sometimes there's somebody who has a president talk about his research uh, or somebody that has an idea of, I'm going to put, you know, humans in a rocket and fly them to the moon or to Mars or, you know, these things that are very big. Would you say that that would constitute that sort of random perturbation within sure, the species? Sure. I mean, how did I even, <laughs> you know, any discovery, uh, and I put it in air quotes because it makes me uncomfortable. I have discovered some things that other people... Well, it belongs in air quotes, because I don't know that someone else hasn't discovered them, but they didn't get to publish it. Right. Um, but why did I see this thing versus that thing? Um, you know, and the, and the stem cell stuff has been disappointing, because I think stem cell research has produced very little compared to what we thought it might produce 25 years ago. And a lot of what it has not come through with is because of the politics that developed around that, that interfered with its proper development. Now, more recently, I was lucky enough to have another discovery. Um, and uh, this was reported in 2018, where my group showed that there are these fluid-filled spaces and connective tissue of the body that we didn't think was were there. Um, and there are things called interstitial spaces or an interstitium, the spaces between cells excuse me, between structures in the body. And it turned out that those are very tiny. And what we were showing were much larger. So we said these are a new kind of interstitium. And it got reported out as um, that we had discovered a new human organ. And, um, and that went viral for a while, you know. And now, five years later, I can mention this, and people who were alive back then are like, what? I don't remember that. But uh, for the two weeks after, um, three times taxi drivers in New York looked in the mirror and said, you're that new organ guy, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> so that's my definition of viral. So it went viral. Um, there were a lot of angry people in the world when we published this, because in the world of osteopathic medicine, and what we think of in a medical center like this as traditional Western medicine, what we that's referred to as allopathic, 
the osteopaths, which is an American, a Western tradition, but did not win out in the competitions. They've been talking about fluid and tidal forces in the body for 50, 60, 70 years. And people who do body work, intimate, you know, uh, therapeutic body work with people, uh, cranial sacral uh, practices or rolfing, they've all talked about fluid in the connective tissue. Um, so they were really pissed off uh, that we're saying this is a new thing. But in allopathic medicine, it wasn't a new thing. I mean, it, it, it was a new thing. It took me a while to realize I didn't know about their stuff, not because they didn't publish it, but because the allopathic community would not publish it. Right. Now, I was in China because of my liver pathology work and um, when that was happening, and they asked me to present to a bunch of Chinese doctors about that work. And one of the doctors uh, in the audience, who was a liver doctor, I'd already met him about liver stuff, but he was also one of the higher ups in uh, Chinese traditional medicine, their version of sort of the NIH of traditional Chinese medicine. And he had the first question, question to me out of respect for his position. And he said, so how have people responded to your interstitial work? And I said, well, generally, you know, it's anatomy. It's You can't design an experiment like you do with stem cells and show it's not there because it's just anatomy. But there are a lot of people who were angry because um, we reported it as new and they'd known it for 60 or 70 years. And he laughed and said, yes, and we've known about it for 4,000. <laughs> so, um, and it turns out to be true. And it turns out that a lot of uh, what they've been using a metaphorical language to describe in traditional Chinese medicine and acupuncture and energy healing um, actually maps very specifically to these anatomic structures, which we're defining. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so what gets known? Um, the only reason our, we went viral that week is because Stephen Hawking died two weeks before. Um, there was no science news of interest the week our paper got published. And because uh, there was a hole. So, oh, here's a new human organ. Let's publish that. And suddenly, you know. So there's always random. Why did I discover the interstitial? Because I was a liver pathologist at Beth Israel Hospital, and I was hired there by um, the head of liver disease there because um, he wanted his own pathologist in the suite of offices where the other hepatologists, liver doctors were, as well as the GI fellow trainees, um, so that they gave me my own multi-headed scope and I could teach them liver disease at the microscope, but within the GI division of the Department of Medicine. So because I was there, these endoscopists who I was working with also in the, in the same suite um, they had a fancy new endoscope that allowed them to look at the microscopic level in human tissues. And I'd been there already at this point for 14 years. But they came in and said, you know, when we looked in the wall of the bile duct, we saw this funny structure. What is this? And I had no idea what it is. And tracking that down in the middle of the wall of the bile duct turned into this body-wide communication network all because I'm a liver pathologist who got hired by a creative hepatologist who wanted me to teach his trainees. And a very large anatomic discovery was made because of that. 
anything you guys have done. I mean, track anything you're proud of as an idea you had, a creative moment you had in your career. Um, where did it come from? Can you pinpoint it? And if you can, how might it not have happened if you had eaten a slice of pizza instead of a piece of chocolate cake? Or if someone you encountered said this phrase to you instead of that one, right? I've always found that, and I've had this exact conversation about this exact question with many people over the years uh, who have asked that, like, how did you figure out this thing? Or how did you do this thing that you did? And my answer has always been fairly consistent in that it wasn't me. It was the people around me who were listening to my ideas, telling me which ones are good and bad, because uh, I can't self-select on, on that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and me knowing who to listen to, or listen to everybody, but know what things to listen to in order to adapt that to the knowledge that I had before. So it's teachers, it's history, it's people that came before that built the tools or the ideas that I'm using. Mm -hmm. So I'm always, it's always, to me, it's not an individual thing for myself. It's always, right, it's a wet. I, yeah, I did this because I am human in this place at this time. Right. And I listen. Right. Now, the, the only thing I would differ with you on, I'm sorry, I keep wanting to differ with you guys. That's fine. <laughs> um, I'm not sure why I'm flipping into that language, but um, maybe because I'm scared of people who are going to want to talk about machine learning. Um, the is that you use the word because I know. And I'd say, um, I think for me, the word is I intuit. I can't even say why I know this is correct or that. There's an instinct there. I have lots of creative ideas. Um, and a lot of them, and most of them, I could design an experiment to test. Hmm. But sometimes I have an idea, and I'll do the experiment to, to show it, but I know what the result is. And, and where does that come from? There, there's an intuitive aspect that's kind of magic. And I suspect that that's when, does that come from experience and expertise over time? Uh, is it something a little bit more mystical, metaphysical? I have no idea. Right. Because I've worked side by side with people that have done several different professions that I've been in mm -hmm. from the, the traditional engineering before to data science work to now software engineering that you look at the cumulative amount of time that they have spent in that, in that role. And you're like, wow, you've been doing this for 30 years or 40 years. Why doesn't this person right. like get this the yeah. same way that this, this kid that's 22 years old or 24 yeah. years old yeah. has yeah. this intuition. I, I have no idea how it works because it, I don't think it's wisdom based. I think wisdom puts a tamper on the, the number, like the quantity of outrageous mm -hmm. ideas that might be explored. Because mm -hmm. you kind of have, you know, that, that experience to say. Constrained, there has to be a yes. constraint around the randomness. It's not infinite creativity. You'd never create any. Right. Yeah. But it's that, that the importance of constraint uh, uh, is kind of fascinating. I've noticed for myself, because I have a long Zen Buddhist practice, um, I've been meditating uh, since my late 20s. And that coincided with me becoming an academic in medicine. 
And um, it's not entirely true now. Um, but for the first 15 or 20 years of that, I would say to people, and it was true, that all my best science ideas came while I was meditating on the cushion. And not because I was thinking about those things when I was on the cushion, but while sitting on the cushion doing my Zen practice, whether it was following my breath or working on a Zen koan, as it's called, things would float up and I'd suddenly just, there it is. Um, and um, there was a moment when the stem cell stuff happened. I was on sabbatical at Yale. Um, I was thought I went there to, to learn how to study liver stem cells. I, I thought I had found, and I had found uh, what's called a stem cell niche, that the liver has stem cells. Um, it was my group sort of that was the first to really show that human, that livers have stem cells. It was, had been debated for many years. Um, and we showed it in humans because that's what I look at. I look in human tissues and I had gone to study that. And then this bone marrow idea came in from left field and it just all sort of revved up. And I had about four years where, um, I was waking up with ideas in the middle of the night and had to write them down. And it, it, that was a burden. <laughs> mm -hmm. I wanted it to stop and it wouldn't stop. Um, and I didn't know what had happened. Um, it felt like it was coming from outside. Um, and looking back, I think what had happened is I'd been meditating long enough that my brain started functioning in a different way. My mind, I should say started functioning in a different way with a different level of uh, speed and creativity. Um, and I'm still kind of dealing with that. It's uh, <laughs> my husband took note of it at the time. And it's, there's a question, when am I going to stop? Um, that's why I actually having my strokes back in February was kind of fabulous um, because um, the universe said stop, and I did, and <laughs> learned. The only way I could stop before was smoking pot. If I smoked pot, then I couldn't remember what I was just thinking, <laughs> and, and then I would stop. But but I can't smoke pot like I used to. So, <laughs> I mean, Michael's heard me talk about a similar thing in the past about intuition when it when it arrives, and I, I've coined it as sort of the shower thoughts yeah. so i used to keep yeah. a grease pencil mm -hmm. uh in my shower uh, <laughs> years ago just in case i came up with a solution for a coding problem or some sort of like business problem that i was working mm -hmm. on i would be able to just fill an entire wall of the shower uh with love notes and on the code. yeah and sometimes i would actually go in later after you know getting dressed and everything go in and just take pictures of code that i wrote and right. transpose it onto right. into a computer. Not that it always worked, but sometimes it's it's just a, a directional idea of how to yeah. solve some complex problem. Right. And I've always had that same sort of uh, experience that that you described. Uh, in my twenties, I was doing a similar thing to meditating every day, mm -hmm. um, and that sort of trance like state that you get into with with uh, with doing like intense meditation. Yeah, it sort of frees your mind in a way where you're completely relaxed and your mind can just wander places. That Yeah, you get out of your life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, that's that's I I love the image of you in the shower with a grease pencil. <laughs> yeah, um, I've gotten to the point where yeah, I used to like I said I would get up at three in the morning and I really don't like to get up at three in the morning to write something down. Um, and now I've just gotten so over it that you know I'm like if I could do it once I'll do it again. Yep. And I just like you know and. Uh, Writing the book, there were often things where, oh, I'm out on a bicycle or I'm on the cushion meditating. And like this great sentence would come to me and I'm just like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> if it was that good, it'll come back. I could do it once. I'll do it again. And it's not fine. Um, I had to let go of that. Yeah. And the process of writing a book, how many times you actually end up editing and rewriting stuff anyway. It's like, oh, okay. Well, and that was... Um, I'd never written, you know, I've written lots of papers. I've written lots of academic chapters and pathology textbooks and stuff, but I've never written a book for a general audience before. And I've given talks on this complexity stuff for 20 years. It started with the stem cell stuff. That's how I met complexity theory. Um, it was through a stem cell thing. Um, but speaking it to an audience, whether they're fifth graders or grad students or, you know, stem cell biologist that's one thing but writing a book was a whole other thing i had to learn and i never took english in college you know i was too busy being a pre-med pre-rabbinical you know computer science geek. <laughs> so, um but there was in the editing i learned a lot about editing and um in the uh section of the book where i talk about kurt gödel and his incompleteness theorems there were about 25 pages there I chopped out um, for the final version. But there was one sentence in there that I thought, that's one of the best sentences I've written in the book. And if I hadn't written those 25 pages, I would never have gotten that sentence. And I suddenly mm -hmm. felt like, oh, it's worth it. <laughs> and that's being a writer. <laughs> Do you remember what it was? No, <laughs> of course, just remember the experience of it. I think I have a guess as to what it was, but, but I'm not sure. But in that moment of cutting all those pages, I was just so grateful that I had found this sentence. Yeah. Why are you smiling, Michael? It's, it's just, I, I have so many freaking things to say right now, but I'm just shutting up and listening. No, That's no, no. We've been talking for... <laughs> A really long time. <laughs> yeah, no, the, it's just um, nice to see a lot of things that I've been thinking about and have been learning about. Uh, be, like, validated is the wrong word, but see other people come to this from a very different background, come to similar conclusions. Um, the shower thoughts and the meditation thoughts, that brings me back to Brene, Brene Brown's book, Learning How to Learn. It was super well-timed. I read it, I think, as like a sophomore in college. And I was sort of struggling to figure out how to deeply learn a concept. I had always learned to pass tests. And then I had side projects to actually learn things. And uh, she discusses this concept of focus mode, where you're sort of very keyed in on a single problem. And then when you need ideas or sort of the gestalt aha moment, you take a step back, go for a walk, go on a run, meditate, shower, and that lets your mind relax and enter a diffuse mode of thinking. And I think meditation adds another level where, as you said, you get out of your way and you can really like, move around your mind and the idea space that you've just created via the focus mode. You have a lot of like raw material to play with. 
And uh, so it's just really cool to to hear. But I wanted to ask something that Ben, or focus on something that Ben mentioned earlier, and Neil, you agree with, which is uh, sort of silicon-based systems will not be able to replicate this focus in diffuse mode and maybe come up with creative artificial general intelligence. Why? So, you know, one of the things that makes me sort of unhappy is that I wrote this book and it landed when suddenly everyone's talking about AI. And there is a footnote about AI or more importantly, artificial consciousness. I think it's page 165. I can't remember. Um, uh, and that's sort of, really, that's what I have to talk about now, but apparently that's what I have to talk about. Um, so I think artificial, when you say artificial intelligence, I'm willing to say that there's extraordinary stuff that AI can do. And there's extraordinary kinds of problem solving that can happen in the dark space of whatever is going on inside a deep learning thing that we're never able to look into because we can't. Um, so that's possible. Um, and I don't know how to put limits on that or where the limits are, are going to be. Could it be that in 10 or 20 years, someone is being me with a liver biopsy? Um, you know, it will have to be not just the pathologist's information, but the full clinical team's information too, because all, like I said, all of it will have to come to bear the way it does day to day. But um, I don't know about that. But will a machine become self-aware? I don't think so. Um, and it's because I don't think that the brain makes our mind. And I don't think um, you know, the materialist perspective that, um, and this is where complexity theory has been applied to consciousness studies. Um, complexity talks about the emergent scales, larger scale structures that arise from the interactions of the ants at the lower scale. So no ant is thinking, am I part of a food line? They're just responding to the pheromone sense signals from other ants and physical touch and chemical signaling when they touch the food to know to walk this way and then walk this way. But when you step back and all the ants are doing the same thing, turns out they're forming a line. The ants aren't trying to form a line. Each ant, any more than any human, is really, you know, we may think we're trying to do shit, but we haven't got a clue. Um, so that's called emergence. And, um, and to give you an example of how we don't know we're aware of even doing it, one of my favorite examples, I think this got cut from the book. I have to reread the book now because I can't remember what's in it. <laughs> um, did I talk about the ants going up the wisteria branch in Kyoto? You remember that, Michael? Uh, I don't, but that doesn't mean it wasn't in there. <laughs> no, no, I think it's because I, I, I think I cut it out. So I was in Kyoto um, for a liver conference. <laughs> Um, but I was on the turf of a Zen temple there because I was doing that stuff too. And there was a, a thick wisteria branch and I noticed it sort of like was moving and I looked in more closely and there were two lines of ants going up the outside of the branch and there was a line of ants coming down the branch. And I thought, oh, that's cool. Emergent properties of ants moving up the branch. 
And then I got home to New York and I live on the Lower East Side. And I was coming up out of the subway at uh, Delancey and Essex subway stop. And there's one part of the station where the staircase is a bit wider than staircases in the subway usually are. And it was rush hour. And there were two lines of people going up the stairs and (laughs) going down the stairs. Emerging property of New Yorkers in that subway station on a staircase that wide. Um, It seems like magic how this happens because no one's planning. it. There's no top-down planning. The magic of living systems is that it's a bottom-up phenomenon. That what looks like a well-designed functioning body is happening just because each cell is doing what it's doing with its neighboring cell and the and the interstitium between them. Um, so when people look at consciousness in the brain, it seemed like, well, obviously, mind is this magical thing arising as an emergent property out of how neurons are signaling to each other and chemicals are signaling, et cetera. All the, all the parts of the brain um, are creating something larger than the whole, which is you know, that's the cliche, which I use in the book. Um, in complex systems, the, the whole is always greater than the sum of the parts. In this case, mind, greater than the sum of the parts of the brain. Um, but the problem with that is what's known as the hard problem of consciousness, which is um, um, no one in cognitive neuroscience Whenever anyone in cognitive neuroscience is doing any sort of study of the brain, let's say fMRI or EEGs or whatever, and they can say that, for example, you look at the classic example, you look at a red rose, there are photons bouncing off the the rose that correspond to the frequency of red light. They hit your retina, they cause a chemical signal in the cell, which leads to an electrical impulse to the back of your brain, blah, blah, blah. Um, And you see the color red. Now close your eyes and imagine the color red. There's no photon, there's no structure, there's no sequence events, but you're having the experience of redness. When your eyes are open, all of that stuff is happening, but that doesn't explain the experience of smelling the rose or seeing the color red, you know, et cetera. And so whenever you read any one of the hundreds of thousands, maybe millions already of studies, they always talk about neural correlates of consciousness. They don't say this part of the brain causes consciousness. This part of the brain contains the mechanism whereby we have that experience. We simply know that when the brain does this, we have an experience. When we have an experience, our brain does this. So there's nothing that shows that the brain makes mind. And so people have suggested, well, maybe... Mind is something that happens at smaller things. Maybe cells have mind. And it's the aggregate of cells that then, that each of which has a little mind. And so that's a complexity sort of thing. Oh, little conscious cells self-organize and give rise to emergent big mind. But that doesn't explain the hard problem either. So some people have moved down in scale and say that, well, maybe there are some particles at the quantum scale that convey mind. Some people say that space-time itself might actually be what is producing mind. There's proto-consciousness in space-time. But that just moves the hard problem down to smaller levels of scale. The third possibility is that mind comes first. 
And this is exactly what the founders of quantum physics, with the remarkable exception of Einstein, um, said. Planck himself, Max Planck, who that he could be this creative in his day and age, at his age, is kind of astonishing. But based on quantum physics, the problems of how a conscious observer changes the outcome of an experiment, a conscious observation changes the nature of reality. He said, there's no getting behind consciousness, meaning consciousness precedes the fundamental nature of reality. And this aligns with Western philosophy from Plato down to Spinoza, Kant, Hegel, etc. Um, it's only our mechanistic, um, Newtonian mechanical view of the universe that says everything that is a machine that implies that, no, 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 all of this must make mind. Um, and complexity theory feeds into that too, which is a part of what I get into in the book. And I mentioned Kurt Gödel before in his incompleteness theorems. And that feeds into this too. All lines of contemporary scientific and philosophical thought in our own Western tradition points to the fact that mind comes first. And then if you're a Zen student or a mystic, <laughs> And you have direct experiences of when I go into my mind deeply enough, there can be no, if I want to study my mind, I can't do it like a scientific experiment where I have, here's this slide and I'm here observing the slide. In quantum physics, we know that a separation of subject and object, the experimenter and the, the object of study, there is no separation at the quantum level. Well, when you're studying your own mind, there can't be any separation either. And the fundamental nature of mind when you look inwards turns out to be non-separate, non-dualistic. What comes first is pure awareness, which gradually starts to become aware of itself. And in that shimmying into subject and object, What's required to have a subject and object? Some sort of dimensional split, some separation where you can say, this is me and this, that is not me. And that's where dimensions come into play, space and time and who knows however many. And so I can argue, as I try in the book, um, to say that non-dual pure awareness in which there is no subject-object split. As it becomes aware of itself, that gives rise to dimensions, meaning space-time. And we know from quantum physics that space-time is not empty, it's an energy-rich field. And we know from relativity that energy and mass are the same, and that energy-rich field gives rise to the quantum foam, whatever the smallest entities of existence are, no agreement on that. And those give rise to subatomic particles, atoms, molecules, and the whole universe. So you can build a very coherent structure that mind is what comes first. And the brain or pieces of the universe don't make consciousness. And so no computer just doing straightforward algorithms is going to become conscious. That doesn't mean, and this is my footnote, that doesn't mean that there isn't a structure we could build that could do what brains do. What brains do are like a radio which transduces 
infinite radio waves into sound. You know you can turn your computer on to give you a light show instead of sound or do both. So however you transduce it depends on how you program that transducer. So I would say our brains are not producing mind. Our brains are transducing the fundamental consciousness, big C consciousness, into our small consciousnesses. How does it do that? There's something about brain structure that makes, that facilitates that. And where the radio metaphor gets interesting is if the universe arises from consciousness and produces a brain which can transduce that consciousness, it's like, what would it be to have a radio made of radio waves that could transduce radio waves into something you could hear? There's this weird self-referential thing. Could we build some sort of quantum computer maybe? that is completely unlike any silicon-based <laughs> thing that's algorithm-based that could transduce it. Well, we know that the brain can do that. Maybe we could engineer something like that. But is this kind of AI, which is just hyperkinetic formal programming, algorithmic programming, is that going to become conscious? No chance. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, <laughs> I think I think we're still like several, probably more than a century off from making real headway into quantum computing, in my opinion. I know a lot of tech companies are throwing obscene amounts of money into it. Yeah. But those those units are still pretty far off from being and, useful. And, and is that the way, is that the secret? You know, Who knows? I don't, don't think know. anybody knows. We don't know. But I think it's very easy for a lay person who doesn't know how the sausage is made with stuff like large language models. They don't understand how these things, the clever tricks that software engineers do to make them do what they do. And they see something generating language, which is exclusively a human thing. Right. You know? So they get easily fooled by that. They're like, wow, this thing is talking to me and it's making sense. And it seems alive. It's like, no, it is operating within a very, very restricted space of patterns, which is how we communicate with one another. It's not how ideas yeah. are formed. It's, right. it's the medium in which we communicate with one another, which requires structure. So it it's just pattern recognition. And generative AI is using probabilities of words that match with one another based on a contextual reference of what's passed in. It's not magic. It's right. And this is but it has that, it's an emergent property of this program and has that feeling of magic. But it is, right. um, and that gets into two issues. There's the, the issue of, well, probabilities based on language that's been input primarily um, from rich white men yes. <laughs> who write in a particular fashion. And if you were to include larger populations, you might very well get a lot more variety. Yes. Not creativity, but it would be more reflective of what humans are capable of. But should I go into the Godel stuff? I mean, we're already over time, so let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> and I assume you're going to edit all of this down into some. Nope. 
I, I want to hear every second of it. All right. Room. All right. Well, if you're okay with it. Um, this was the, this was the, the piece that sort of took me over the edge. Um, when we think about how to know the true nature of reality in our contemporary Western terms, this was best formulated, um, by a group of philosophers in Vienna between the world wars, um, called the Vienna Circle. And um, they're probably the most influential philosophers that uh, most people have never heard. And their mission was coming out of the rubble of World War I and the obvious failure of religious hierarchies to establish the true nature of reality um, turned towards science and industry to show how best to do that. And the way to do that, they felt, was to eliminate things that um, could not be proven, meaning things that constitute metaphysics. Is there a God? What's the nature of life? Is there life after death? Um, what's the nature of mind? Um, and they gave us basically, they were the most rigorous statement of what we all now think to be true. If you talk to people on the street and say, how do we know the true nature of reality? Um, if they understand what your question is, they'll say science and math, empirical science based on subject-object separation so that the subject can't influence the object of study, and formal mathematics, formal logic. That's how we can, that's modern math and modern science. That's how we build cell phones. That's how we go to the moon. That's how we bake AI. Um, and that's it. The problem is that Modern science pushed to its limits with relativity and quantum physics showed that you can't guarantee separation of subject and object. The experimenter is always influencing the experiment, the, the, the experiment itself. So the, the rug is pulled out from empirical science as actually being a definitive way to understand the true nature of reality. So at least that leaves us with formal mathematics, formal logic. This is where Kurt Gödel comes in. Um, he was Einstein's best friend at the end of Einstein's life. They were together at the uh, Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, both German-speaking refugees from Europe. Um, and he was a member of the Vienna Circle, but like its youngest member. He was brought in because he was recognized as being insanely smart. But, he, um, but it turned out he actually didn't agree with what their mission was. And his basic frame of reference goes back to Plato. Um, the Vienna Circle and many philosophers down through the centuries would argue, did humans create numbers or are numbers something out there that we discovered? Someone discovers a new theorem. Was that theorem out there or did they invent the theorem? And people who believe in formal logic as a fundamental way to argue the true nature of reality, mathematical reality in this case, said, no, we invented numbers to count bushels of wheat or whatever, or stars. And, um, and then we invent all these formal proofs and theories, et cetera. Um, and the way 
mathematics work is you have a hypothesis in the form of a, of a theorem. And, um, you know, the sum of any two even numbers is an even number. Uh, that would be a theorem that's easily proved. And, um, and you make the proof and you get to more complicated theorems and you get more complicated proofs, but you can get there and you can prove everything. And if we're really smart, we will have a mathematical description of all existence that functions like a logical machine that gives us the true nature of reality, the way empirical science is supposed to. What, <laughs> what Gödel proved is that if a formal system of logic is completely consistent with itself, which is what's necessary. If it's inconsistent, you can't prove, you can prove anything, right? So it has to be consistent. If you have a formal logic, formal system of logic that can, involves numbers that um, is perfectly consistent, there will be things that are true about the system that cannot be proven from within the system. So if a system is consistent, it is not complete. And what the Vienna Circle and mathematical, the formal logicians back 100 years ago were saying is, that's how you assess the success of formal logic. The system has to be complete. It has to explain everything and has to be consistent. There can be no chance for internal contradiction. So he first proved that if you have a consistent system, there would be proof, things that are true about the system that cannot be proven. And on the other hand, if you have a system that is complete, that explains everything, contains the entire universe of knowledge, of mathematical structure, it will always necessarily contradict, it, contradict itself and fall apart as a formal system. So just like quantum physics said empirical science can't work, mathematics doesn't describe the universe either. And what this meant to Gödel is there are theorems out there we can intuit are true, but we can't prove them. Mm -hmm. They are the platonic ideals that exist beyond the human mind, and we merely discover, we merely find them. We don't invent them. So there's a world of mathematical intuition that exists beyond what we can compute. And when Turing made the Turing machine, this was just an elaboration on Gödel's proof, actually, and sort of a response to Gödel's proof. And we know that that turned into computers. Um, at the heart of this is computers cannot do what the human mind can do, because the human mind can intuit that something is true and know it to be true, but cannot prove it to be true using a formal algorithm. Our computers are nothing but formal algorithms. Yeah. <laughs> Fancy ones, but yeah. 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 And that sort of brings it full circle to your, like our initial conversation of being comfortable with diagnosing based on intuition instead of a list of X, Y, Z. Like you definitely have a list of X, Y, Z, but having the confidence to at the most extreme scale determine some, the outcome of someone's life via intuition. Um, I think that helps back up and make you make it make you able to make these decisions via intuition. Well, and and that's why medicine is an art, not a science. 
no matter how much we've tried in the last century to push it in that direction. Um, it's not a bad thing. I think most things are an art, not a science. I think so too. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's such a a fascinating thing that modern society doesn't place value on is the unprovable. I mean, once you, you bring that up, it starts making me think about what does what does the modern Western world value more than anything else? Mm-hmm. You know, aside from you know Money. acquisition of wealth and capitalist societies, but the pursuit of of knowing new things is such a small part of our existence small subset of people that are dedicating their lives to discover new things. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of people are content with knowing what they know or what they believe that they know. And mm-hmm. there's not a lot of emphasis that's placed on things that aren't provable. Uh, yeah. And, you know, and th- this is to me where the spirituality stuff comes in. Um, one of the places. Uh, Gödel himself said in a letter to his mother that he was sure that people interested in religion would find a use for his proof. Um, Though what his own religious feelings were maybe lurking in the huge, vast storehouses of notes he wrote that still haven't been translated or interpreted because he had this really weird uh, turn of the century German shorthand hmm. for note taking. <laughs> so it's, it's really hard to know what he was thinking. And he never finished anything. It's like, it's amazing he finished those two completeness theorems, incompleteness theorems. Um, but the three of us obviously prize intellectual scientific effort as a mode of understanding and creating. Um, And yet you turned to meditating, at least for a time, for some reason. Um, And I have. And because that brought something else to the table somehow. Mm -hmm. Um, My mom, I tried to get to meditate for a long time. And um, because she was a very anxious person. And I was a very anxious person, and that was something I thought a side benefit I might get from the meditating. While Michael's spinning, should I keep talking? Sure. And um, she once said to me, with all the meditating you do, I'd think you'd be less anxious. And I said, imagine (laughs) what I'd be like if I didn't meditate. Um, It took me a long time to realize there was no way she was going to meditate. But if I watched her light her Sabbath candles on Friday night, it was clear that she had a kind of devotional practice that was far deeper and richer than I experienced. And in her declining years, that became who she was moment by moment. And she died um, in a bliss state. So with all the stuff, you know, with all the meditating I've done. So 
in the last six years, what six to eight years of her life, she maybe she had some tiny strokes or something. She lost her short-term memory, um, became like a stoner. And I'd always wondered what she'd be like stoned. And so now, <laughs> I got to find out. And I said to her, <clears throat> you're always happy. And she had not always been a happy person. She'd been a very anxious, fearful person. Um, I said, you're always happy. You're even smiling when you're sleeping now. How do you stay so happy? And she said, well, I no longer worry about the future and I can't remember the past. So all I have is the now. And when I live in the now, I'm happy. That is a profound statement that I think everybody should listen more to. Uh, I think that is, <laughs> that is key in the pursuit of contentment and happiness is to have the cap- have the capacity to pay attention to what is happening right now right. and not get in your own way or let your past get in your own way or, or worry about the future of like, what's going to change about this thing, this new thing that people are working on is just going to disrupt everything. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Just yeah. worry about what you, what's are, right here in front of you. Yeah. And, and, and from the, what you both expressed in your working methods um, is in part you know, the, the sort of stuff you you talk about, Michael, in terms of your reading and how that affects you, it's it seems your instinct is to hone how do I do that? how do I bring a focus and a consistency of effort to this thing I'm working on in front of me here? That seems to be part of the drive. You know, a flip side is I know people who are in medicine or my husband who I'd say he says he has no spiritual practice. But if you watch him prepare a meal for people and serve it, it's all about service. For some people, that's how you get there. Um, It's not about creating new structures and new knowledge or whatever. It's simply being of service. And one of the privileges for me of having liver pathology as a career is every time I look at a slide, I am aware that I'm being of service to someone. I would hope when you're doing your work, you keep in mind that, oh, it's not just the fun of the puzzle, but you're doing something of service for the people around you with whom you're working and hopefully for society um, with, with the things you're building. There are people who get there by artistic practice. Read Walt Whitman. Mm. He knew everything a Zen teacher from 8th century China knew. How? (laughs) (laughs) Through his poetry? Um, So there are all sorts of ways of being. um, And there are all sorts of ways of accessing that larger true nature of reality that our culture teaches us to pretend is a machine. Um, the task is to figure out what suits at any one time, which of these helps you get there. And hopefully everybody does get there eventually. Yeah. True. Cool. Well, I will summarize. Um, there's literally trillions of interesting points in here. So just re-listen. But um, also, there's a lot of things in the book notes and complexity that we did not cover that I found very valuable. So I, I had to. Can we emphasize that the book is only 172 pages of text and it? Yes, <laughs> that's a huge selling point for me. I, I like I 
400 pages, that's scary. That is daunting to me. Right, so right, right. Really so I didn't want to write the book. I thought it had to be 400 pages. It turns out, no, yeah. you can do it in 170. So Then how long was your book? I read that too. But Pardon? Oh, oh Ben has a book? Ben. <laughs> On machine learning. But <laughs> I think it's like 480 pages or something. But the original manuscript was almost a thousand. Yeah. And I was happy to cut, cut, cut more than half that book down. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Okay, cool. So Ben's is past the cutoff of 400 pages. Please well, tell me. <laughs> it's not a thousand. So. True. Silver lining, I guess. Yeah. Lots of right. Yeah, true. And coach. Um, okay, cool. So some things. Uh, first things first, we talked about ML and pathology, and ML probably won't replace pathologists anytime soon, if ever. And one of the core reasons, or a couple of the core reasons, is that pathology requires teamwork, and there's also not sort of a formal structure for diagnosis. There's sort of an art to it that um, could maybe be captured in, in advanced AI, but not anytime soon. A concept I mean, that... I, like I said, I think there are some very simple, low-hanging right. things that probably will happen in the next few years but the next level the branches way yeah yeah exactly like ai can automate sort of the simple but we still need humans at a, at a higher level capacity yeah uh, a cool concept that uh, we discussed is the adjacent possible and it's sort of a finite list of what's possible via the current system and complex systems are fundamentally stochastic or random by nature and randomness uh, is sort of the source of these em interesting emergent properties that come out of selecting pieces from the adjacent possible. Um, breakthroughs, according to Ben and Neil, come through communities. You can't really innovate in isolation, at least typically. Um, and then we talked a lot about sort of learning how to learn. Highly recommend that book by Brene Brown. And then the thing that we were supposed to talk about, because <laughs> this is a machine learning part of podcast, is artificial general intelligence. And a core thing when thinking about AGI via silicon-based systems is the hard problem of consciousness, which is you can't really measure it. Uh, we just have neural correlates. So creating a system that creates consciousness, as you can tell from this episode, it's, it's, a, it's a mouthful. So, Neil, if people want to learn more about you or your book, where should they go? I now have a website, uh, neilthesofficial.com. I had to do the official because I had neothese.com some years ago and then lost control of it. I don't know how these things exist or happen. This is your domain. So now neotheseofficial.com, which embarrasses me, but there you go. Um, and I've got a million videos online. There's a million podcasts because of the book. But even before the book, there were all these talks I gave. So if you Google me, all sorts of stuff comes up. Amazing. But buy the book. You don't have to read it. You just have to buy it. <laughs> True. And cool. if you read it and like it, suggest it to other people. It seems to be doing very well by word of mouth, which is how it got to you guys. I think. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, uh, my therapist recommended it. She, she does uh, Zen Buddhist practice. And we were discussing, like, my discussions with her started getting sort of mes metaphysical and like, how do you succeed in life? That that genre, mm -hmm. um, and she said, read this book. So it was worth. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Very good. There's, it's become uh, popular with the Jungian analysts of Italy, 
there are some artists in Norway who are really excited about it and might be bringing me to Norway uh, next summer. Um, there's the the Edge made it his best top number one cultural moment of the season last spring. Wow. You know, YouTube. So <laughs> Crazy. it's weird. It's it's out there. Yeah. Cool. Well, until next time, it's been Michael Burke and my co-host Ben Wilson. And have a good day, everyone. See you next time.